Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Dr. Rabab Jaffrey. Dr. Jaffrey is an assistant professor in the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology and Diabetes at UT Health San Antonio. She received her medical degree from the Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan and completed her pediatrics residency at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She, she then completed her pediatric endocrinology fellowship at Mass General in Boston. During her time at Harvard, she worked in the Stephen Russell lab for clinical trials on the use of the bionic pancreas in patients with diabetes prior to joining the team here at UT in 2020. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Rabab Chapu. Thank you, Dr. Ange, for that introduction. And uh, thank you everyone for joining and listening. I have no financial disclosures or conflicts. Um, the objectives of my talk today are to um, talk a little bit about the alpha and beta cell dysfunction um, as it relates to the pathophysiology of type 1 diabetes, um, especially highlighting the fact that both insulin and glucagon deficiency exists in this situation, I recognize the burden of care for patients living with type 1 diabetes, and um, take a look at the advancements in diabetes technology leading to the development of the artificial pancreas systems and specifically the bionic pancreas, which we'll be talking about in detail, um, while we highlight some key studies over the years leading up to current pivotal studies um, with the bionic pancreas, um, of which UT San Antonio, our center here, is a key pediatric site um, uh, for the pivotal trials. It is helpful to see that there is a relative deficiency of uh, glucagon in addition to an insulin deficiency in type 1 diabetes. Uh, so the normal pancreas works in a bihormonal fashion uh, with utilizing both insulin and glucagon with very fine regulation of uh, the alpha and beta cells in the islets of Langerhans uh, when it comes to glycemic regulation. And uh, as you can see from this image, this uh, paracrine effect is very important in um, determining the amount of insulin and glucagon released from alpha and beta cells. So the figure on the left is um, the alpha cell glucagon regulation um, and how it, this is influenced by nutrients such as amino acids, by indirectly or directly perhaps glucose and uh, from the autonomic nervous system, from the brain, in addition to the paracrine effects of uh, insulin from the beta cells and somatostatin from the delta cell in the islets of Langerhans. And the image on the right is um, showing uh, the kind of uh, paracrine feedback loop between the alpha and beta cell in particular. So um, the bidirectional paracrine feedback mechanism, uh, which regulates islet uh, function in health and disease, consists of alpha cell pro-glucagon-derived peptides, so glucagon and GLP-1, which signal through beta cell GLP-1 receptor and the glucagon receptor on the beta cell. And these potentiate glucose-stimulated insulin release from the beta cell. Insulin, um, in turn, then inhibits alpha cell glucagon secretion, thereby constituting this paracrine negative feedback loop between alpha and beta cells under normal physiological conditions. And so in the past, it used to be thought that long diabetes duration was considered a prerequisite for the lack of glucagon response, especially as it occurs in hypoglycemia and type 1 diabetes. But there is increasing evidence over the past decade that um, it often occurs as early as within the first few months of diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. This is um, a slide. This, this slide shows the key components of what is required and expected of patients who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in order to keep their blood sugars in check on a daily basis. So it starts off with measuring carbohydrates in the food that they eat, which can be done with uh, reading the nutrition label. And it requires a lot of teaching upfront, um, especially when people are first diagnosed in order to recognize the amount of carbohydrates in their typical plate of food um, and being able to calculate the, the carbs even before they start to eat. It also requires measuring glucose, whether it's done with a traditional blood sugar meter 
or with newer continuous glucose monitoring devices, and then taking that information, so your glucose before you started to eat and the carbs that you're about to eat, and plugging that in into a formula that allows you to make a dosing decision. So this formula uh, constitutes your, um, uh, it includes your carb ratio, which is one unit of insulin, which covers a certain number of carbs for any given person, and a correction factor, which is one unit of insulin, um, and how much of a decrease in blood sugar is expected with administering that um, unit. And so typically people would uh, be doing that calculation either in their head if they've gotten really good at it or um, on, a, on their calculators or sometimes um, uh, with a piece of paper that is given to them at their clinic visit that has a chart um, determining how many units of insulin to be given for what amount of blood sugar and carbs to be taken. So this can, you know, um, uh, of course, be confusing for some patients, but practice and repetition is what um, gets them uh, to do better. And then that dose that is determined for each meal and each correction is then delivered either through uh, an insulin pen or a syringe and vial or through an insulin pump, which is connected to the body through an infusion set. And then the body's response to that amount of insulin depends on several factors again. So it depends on the kind of insulin used. Um, in the past, several different regimens used uh, insulins that were intermediate acting or rapid acting, but newer formulations, which are very fast acting, um, are also now um, available. But what muddies the picture a little bit is extra factors. Um, so exercise, menses, illness, any medications that may increase or decrease insulin resistance will then change the response of the body to the same amount of insulin received at different times. So as you can see, this is um, a pretty intense cycle that patients with type 1 diabetes are needing to do anywhere between 4 to 15 times per day. Um, when it comes to different kinds of insulins, we have a few options um, which are laid out here in this chart depending on their onset of action from, you know, very rapid acting to um, long acting insulins, their peak action from, um, uh, you know, faster peaks to peak less insulins and then their duration of actions. Um, with the discovery of insulin in 1921, um, since then, uh, you know, uh, the development of different analogs has allowed us to mimic pancreatic physiology to an extent with a basal bolus regimen that is often suggested to patients um, in the form of either a long-acting insulin, which is peakless, and it provides a background insulin that works for at least 24 hours um, and up to 48 hours, depending on the analog used, and then rapid-acting analogs that are used to cover for carbohydrate intake and to bring down a high blood sugar. These um, are available in the forms of different pens, different vials, but when we um, think of an insulin pump, in a sense, this makes insulin dosing a little bit easier because it only employs one kind of insulin, which is given in two different forms. One is a very tiny basal rate that is given continuously through the day, mimicking the long-acting insulin. And the, the other form is, or the same insulin is given in a bolus or a much larger dose in response to um, high blood sugars or for covering carbohydrates. And so patients with um, type 1 diabetes are also frequently struggling with hypoglycemia um, in addition to doing what's required on a daily basis. Hypoglycemia is uh, categorized by levels of severity, the first level being less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. This is a level where um, the neuroendocrine responses to uh, hypoglycemia should kick in with counter-regulatory cortisol, growth hormone, and other hormones being produced that uh, would uh, uh, tend to cause a rise in blood sugars. But if that does not happen, or if the hypoglycemia remains uncorrected, then this can progress further on to level two, um, which is a blood sugar of less than 54 milligrams per deciliter. Um, that's an odd number, but it equates to uh, three millimoles per liter for uh, blood sugar. And this is when neuroglycopenic symptoms can start to develop. And so this would be, um, this would look like dizziness, uh, weakness, tremors, which if left uncorrected, can produce um, even more severe uh, effects such as uh, altered mental status, confusion, delirium, seizures, and coma. So that would be the definition of level three hypoglycemia where either you have altered mental status or you require the assistance of a third party to be able to correct hypoglycemia. 
And that definition is used in many different settings, including clinical trials, um, to uh, define a serious adverse event. Hypoglycemia can be symptomatic or asymptomatic. And so any uh, patient with type 1 diabetes is taught to recognize the symptoms of hypoglycemia. Um, some classic symptoms may be present in most patients, but um, some patients are unique with their own symptoms. And so recognizing and knowing to check blood sugars at that point is important. Hypoglycemia unawareness can develop as a result of chronic exposure to hypoglycemia or frequent hypoglycemia. And um, this is when you develop neuroglycopenic symptoms without the initial warning signs. And so uh, the um, sort of pathophysiology of that is the blunting of the neuroendocrine response that should have started to uh, alert the patient already for hypoglycemia, um, and it goes undetected. We teach patients the rule of 15 for treatment of hypoglycemia. This involves treating with 15 grams of rapid-acting carbs um, as soon as the hypoglycemia is detected, and then rechecking a blood sugar in 15 minutes. If the hypoglycemia has improved, then they follow this with a small complex meal that has a mixture of protein and fat that is um, going to maintain euglycemia for the next few hours. But if the hypoglycemia does not improve, then they repeat that um, treatment with 15 grams of rapid-acting carbs. We also show them uh, what would uh, account for those 15 grams of carbs, typically with four ounces of juice, but um, also with equivalent uh, amounts of what they may have lying around them, honey, candy, glucose tablets, etc. They're also required to carry those carbs with them um, whenever they travel um, and at home for uh, ease of access and then to wear a medical alert that would allow uh, EMS or other people to recognize that they have type 1 diabetes if they are found down so that they can um, check for hypoglycemia uh, as an underlying etiology of their uh, condition. And then as part of that safety uh, planning, emergency glucagon is prescribed to these patients and emergency glucagon classically was available in this red kit, which they would be required to carry with them, but also keep one at home, one at school for children, and then ideally one more wherever children were expected to spend a significant amount of time, like at grandparents, at summer camp, etc. This kit comes in the form of two components. One is a powder in the vial and the other is a diluent in the syringe. And this needed, needed to be reconstituted, mixed completely, drawn up back in the syringe, and then administered. So it required several steps, um, as you can imagine, in that setting of, you know, when somebody is uh, um, down with hypoglycemia, uh, this can be a little bit um, difficult to uh, execute uh, with the correct technique. In addition to hypoglycemia, uh, sick day rules apply for when uh, patients are sick with any illness that can change insulin sensitivity. And so uh, during illness, patients are recommended to check their blood sugars even more frequently than usual. Based off their blood sugars, they're then instructed to check for ketones, especially if their blood sugars remain elevated for several hours. And ketones can be checked um, either through urine, but uh, a better form of checking for ketones is with a blood ketone meter, which is not as widely available or covered through insurance, but it tells us uh, more real-time information about ketones and their trend rather than what is collected in the bladder and uh, passed out in urine. Um, in addition to frequent insulin administration to bring the ketones down, adequate hydration through the day is very important even if uh, appetite is poor and PO intake is low to allow the ketones to resolve quickly at home and avoid uh, a visit to the ER. So with all of that, um, it is not surprising that um, there's a very small proportion of patients with type 1 diabetes who actually meet their glycemic targets, um, especially their A1C goal of 7% or below. Um, this graph shows um, the age ranges from 6 um, and beyond with the pediatric age ranges on the left. And uh, you can see that under 15% of patients with type 1 diabetes in the pediatric age range are actually able to meet their A1C target of 7% and under. So taking a look at the timeline of diabetes technology and advancements, um, since the discovery of insulin in 1921, prior to which uh, a diagnosis of type 1 was considered a death sentence with the only cure that may prolong life by a few years, um, including 
severe starvation and carb restriction, which would lead to its own problems such as stunted growth, um, delayed puberty, reduced immunity, um, and infertility, etc. But um, with the discovery of insulin, um, these people had some hope of uh, achieving adequate blood sugar control. And then it became important to be able to measure that blood sugar response um, at home. And so over the years, uh, type 1 diabetes therapy and um, uh, standard of care kind of took a two-pronged approach. One would be to be able to deliver insulin in a way that was feasible and uh, convenient. And the other was to be able to check the blood sugar response, um, which did not rely on um, a big machine sitting at the doctor's office where you could only see your trends um, for the past few months, um, every few months. And so um, the advent of the blood sugar meter, the first iteration of which um, allowed a color change, and then subsequent iterations would quantify the blood sugar. The enzymatic reaction was the same and still is the same, uh, even in continuous glucose monitors, which includes glucose oxidase reacting with glucose. Um, which would then be converted into a blood sugar reading. Continuous glucose monitors check an interstitial blood sugar, whereas uh, blood sugar meters check whole blood. But um, formulas within continuous glucose monitors account for the interstitial fluid, and they correct it to display a plasma glucose, what would be a plasma glucose value. And then um, the concept of a, um, a device that would continuously administer insulin had uh, been around since the 1960s and 70s. And it's interesting that uh, one iteration of this, which looks like a backpack, um, was uh, both an insulin and glucagon pump. So as early as that time, people recognized the importance of glucagon as an additional um, hormone and adjunct to insulin therapy in maintaining uh, better blood sugars. Um, in the inpatient setting and in experimental trials, the auto-syringe injector could be used as a form of insulin pump. And then uh, over time, the devices got smaller and sleeker, easier to use, um, so that insulin pumps in this day and age look very different now. So the figures or the images um, on the right show two different forms of an insulin pump that are currently used. The one on the very right is a tubeless pump, which uh, consists of two pieces. The first is the insulin reservoir itself, which sits on the body and is connected through Bluetooth to a handheld uh, device, which has all the program settings and uh, controls insulin delivery. And the second is the insulin pump that comes with a tube attached to an infusion set. So the infusion set is a very um, small, lightweight uh, piece that sits in the skin and the pump can be put in your pocket or clipped onto your belt. And uh, users would typically go in, put, put in their blood sugar and their carbohydrate um, content, uh, and the pump will automatically calculate a dose and they would hit enter and the dose would be um, administered. And so um, the current forms of smart pumps that are available in the market um, would classify under a hybrid closed-loop system. What a closed-loop system is, um, is a fully automated um, device system that aims to uh, take complete control of blood sugar regulation. And so at this point, the forms available in the market are hybrid closed-loop. So they don't completely automate the work of diabetes control, but they take away some of it. So what they do is that they modulate basal rate insulin based off of blood sugar patterns and blood sugars coming in every five minutes from a continuous glucose monitor. These blood sugars are automatically streaming in via Bluetooth, and so there's no work involved by the wearer to put in numbers manually into their pump. But the work that still remains to be done by the wearer is that they still have to count carbohydrates, they still have to put in those numbers in, they have to let the pump know when the blood sugars are going really high in terms of putting in a correction dose. Because the changes that the pump can make on its own um, is, is a very tiny change up or down, depending on which way the blood sugars are trending. But if there's significant hyperglycemia, it is not able to bring that down completely. And the setup or the first start of the pump still requires the care team to put in their carb ratios, correction factors, and basal rates. 
and uh, to make adjustments to those settings every few months as the patient comes into um, the doctor's office. And so um, it, you know, um, in the background, especially overnight when um, carbohydrates and exercise and, you know, some of the other factors are not at play, it can achieve fairly good control. But then during the day, there's still some work involved. And so an artificial pancreas is a completely closed loop system. An artificial pancreas or an EP system does not mean islet cell or pancreatic transplant. It is a completely external system, which consists of a glucose sensor in the form of a continuous glucose monitor, a control algorithm, and an insulin infusion device. And uh, the concept of AP system dates back um, to about 50 to 60 years in the past. Um, the execution of this has taken several years because some of the logistical considerations, especially as we um, think of including glucagon um, as part of such a system, and I'll talk about that in a minute, um, but that would be the, at the core of an AP system. And so the island bionic pancreas, which is a form of artificial pancreas uh, developed by Beta Bionics, which is a company based in Boston and which partners with uh, Mass General Hospital for its clinical trials, is a unique device because of certain features that make it very different from current available systems. So the way that this is completely automated is that it um, does not require any input of carb ratios, basal rates, or correction factors to be inserted into the pump at the start. The only piece of information that it needs is the patient's weight for initialization. And once the weight is entered and the pancreas is started, it automates insulin dosing right away and starts to learn immediately from every dose that is given to the patient based off of their response from that dose. It adapts uh, autonomously and continuously to individual insulin needs. What that means is that it is continuously learning in real time. And so some of the physiological factors that we talked about, exercise, illness, menses, et cetera, during those times, the bionic pancreas is very quickly changing its understanding of uh, insulin sensitivity based off of the wearer and um, either increasing or decreasing doses to adapt to those needs. Um, wearers have a choice in terms of the glucose target, so they can choose a usual target or they can choose a lower or higher target depending on time of the day. So for instance, for very young kids, we uh, parents have the option to choose a higher than usual target for the overnight phase for safety. Um, so there is some customization that can be done. Um, and then the one of the biggest perks um, that, that comes uh, with the algorithm that is in place is that there is no carbohydrate counting uh, involved or needed. There is no requirement to be putting in um, uh, or announcing meals, but it is preferred that uh, wearers at least announce three major meals of the day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or supper. And then the user interface will ask them if this is a typical meal for them, so usual for them, or less than usual or more than usual. And that is the extent of what they have to let the bionic pancreas know in terms of meal announcements. And then it continues to learn um, over the next three to four days in terms of meal announcements, what a typical breakfast would be like for that patient, what a higher than usual dinner would look like, and it would get to um, very fine dosing recommendations for what um, that patient should take and is given through the pancreas for that particular meal. And so each meal is considered in its own category. So for instance, a usual breakfast would be uh, very different from a usual dinner for that patient. So they wouldn't be all lumped together. And then all correction insulin doses are automated, no requirement by the wearer to put in a high blood sugar because the pancreas is already working on it. And um, uh, so in this way, as long as blood sugar information is continuously coming in every five minutes, the dosing algorithm is taking care of all of the other considerations. And as long as an infusion set is patented and connected and the uh, pancreas is charged and uh, filled with insulin and or glucagon, um, this loop is closed. This is um, an, uh, a visual of the bionic pancreas consisting of a uh, device which is about as big as a currently available pump um, with a graphic user interface and a touch screen, which is menu driven. 
It uh, is connected via Bluetooth to a continuous glucose monitor, and patients have a choice of two or three different kinds of continuous glucose monitors that they can rely on, as long as those are considered uh, appropriately accurate. And then the bionic pancreas can transmit that information, the blood sugar information, to your smartwatch or phone, so that the wearer is always aware of what their blood sugars are. Um, in this configuration, which is bihormonal, there are two chambers, each for uh, an insulin and glucagon cartridge. And then the end of that chamber is connected to two separate infusion sets, which are um, uh, which would deliver insulin and glucagon um, uh, and, and avoid any interaction between the two medications subcutaneously um, or through malfunction of one set or the other, So, which is why the infusion sets were not developed to be uh, one piece. And so going back to our cycle of what all is needed um, for patients with type 1 diabetes, here we have a continuous glucose monitor that is taking up the work of checking blood sugars. There is no carb counting involved. And then the blood sugars are being fed automatically to a dosing algorithm, which is a pretty sophisticated algorithm because it takes into account all the different factors. Um, that can affect insulin um, dosing. It also takes into account how much insulin has already been administered and how much glucagon has been given if we're using glucagon. And it then um, dictates automatic dose delivery through the pancreas with all of the other factors already taken into account um, with the continuous adaptation that the device does after wear. So these dosing decisions and this cycle is going on 288 times per day, which is every five minutes, depending on every five minute blood sugar data coming in from your glucose monitor. So key features of the bionic pancreas algorithm include a model predictive um, algorithm, which means that not only is the insulin dosing adjusted based off of what the blood sugars are at the current time, but also what they're predicted to be in 30 minutes to 60 to 90 minutes, depending on previous patterns. It's a proportional derivative algorithm as well. So there are four to five different algorithms running in parallel. What this means is that it takes into account how much insulin and glucagon has been delivered in the past to avoid stacking. The key feature is um, that, you know, as you uh, one might think that uh, there's a lot of extra training involved in switching somebody over to the bionic pancreas. Um, certainly when we have uh, patients who have been using injections in the past and they're converted to a pump, they um, sit down with a pump educator and spend several hours learning how to use the pump. But because this is a much simpler way um, with the closed loop taking away a lot of the work, the training period for this device is not extensive at all. And this we um, uh, learned firsthand uh, when we were part of the pivotal trial and we included children who had not used either a continuous glucose monitor or uh, an insulin pump in the past. And the amount of time it took to train them was no different than the amount of time it took to train somebody who had been using a CGM or insulin pump. Um, because in essence, all that is needed is uh, learning how to insert an infusion set, learning how to use a continuous glucose monitor, which our diabetes educators um, do fairly quickly in clinic every day um, for our patients, and learning how to use the um, uh, uh, user interface, which is fairly easy. And then there is continuous adaptation, as we talked about, no need to insert previous numbers or ratios. And um, for safety, one key feature is that um, if there is any scenario where the CGM is offline, whether it has fallen off or the Bluetooth connection has um, disconnected, the bionic pancreas will continue to dose insulin as it was doing in the past based off of learning that it has done from the wearer over the period of time um, of wear. And so this allows dosing to continue without any interruptions, even when the CGM is not working, um, allowing fairly good glycemic control until the CGM comes back online. So the question of glucagon or no glucagon, this has been highly contested over the past many, many years um, with different centers working on their own versions of the artificial pancreas, because this would require a lot of logistical considerations especially with the kind of glucagon that was available up until recently. Uh, so I showed you that red kit where the diluent needed to be reconstituted with the powder in the vial. 
And uh, once that is done, that is only stable for 24 hours. And so any pump that aims to provide continuous glucagon delivery would um, require the wearer to reconstitute glucagon every day, mix it up, put it in the in the cartridge and insert it, and then um, uh, expect to uh, kind of keep up with that with uh, typically glucagon only being covered by insurance for one or two kits in a whole year when given in emergency purposes. So first it was going to be, um, you know, not that feasible to ask that of the wearer. Um, and then second, it would also not be financially feasible. What we know from um, physiology um, is, or, uh, you know, is that different kinds of exercise uh, levels or intensities have different effects on the body's blood sugar patterns. And so moderate level of uh, physical activity tends to um, slowly decrease blood sugars. That happens even, you know, after the 10 minute mark and that continues to slowly downtrend. Whereas with um, more intense or vigorous physical activity, there is first an upsurge in blood sugars related to um, uh, counter-regulatory um, hormones and then a steep fall in blood sugars um, after the 20 minute mark. And so if we... Um, based insulin delivery off of CGM trends, which would be coming in very quickly in real time, and um, used the mechanism that smart pumps now have of suspending insulin delivery at the first signs of falling blood sugars, we know that within 15 minutes, the blood sugars have fallen to the point where uh, they would be getting in the hypoglycemic range. Yet suspension of insulin delivery is not going to be enough to avoid that hypoglycemia because whatever insulin has already been given is still active in the blood for the next two to three hours. And so at this point, microdosing of glucagon would aim to blunt that fall as a result of um, um, exercise or any other uh, you know, changes that cause a steep fall in blood sugars and uh, cause a, a return to euglycemia. So to test that hypothesis, we did a CAMP study back in 2013, which included uh, children in the Boston area with type 1 diabetes. Um, these are more adolescents of so 12 and beyond, but uh, there are two CAMPs, Camp Jocelyn um, for boys and Clara Barton for girls. Um, and, uh, you know, if anyone's been to diabetes camp, which some of our residents and medical students were, um, got the opportunity to attend a couple of weeks ago, uh, our first ever camp after the COVID years. Um, they know how active these kids are during camp and that they typically require insulin adjustments at least on a daily basis, if not even more frequently. And so um, we wanted to test the benefit of glucagon in that um, phase of extreme physical activity. Uh, so we did that with the randomized crossover design with five days in the bionic pancreas and five days on usual care or UC. And um, the participants had to have capillary blood sugar checks through the day and through the night for safety to make sure that the CGM was reading accurately. Study staff and camp staff were on site 24-7 to provide round-the-clock telemetry and to monitor glycemia. And um, it uh, included 16 boys and 16 girls to uh, enable about 160 days of bionic pancreas data in total. The findings of uh, the study are summarized in the uh, ball and stick plot on the right, which um, shows the bionic pancreas arm on the right and the control group on the left. The line um, uh, shows the mean CGM glucose during days two to five of bionic pancreas or usual care arms with um, clearly uh, the, uh, with, with the red line showing the mean CGM achieved between the two arms. And so as you can see that there was a wide um, range of mean CGMs um, for all the participants coming in um, to the study um, during their usual care, which uh, and, and the range really tightened while on the bionic pancreas. The mean CGM also decreased, so that is the direction of the, the lines. Hypoglycemia exposure is indicated by the relative size of the circle. And so um, you can see that the the size of the circles towards the end of these lines also decrease in the bionic pancreas arm and the exposure to hyperglycemia with that being defined as a blood sugar of greater than 10 millimoles which is about 180 milligrams per deciliter also decreased in the bionic pancreas arm 
And so we found a reduction of mean uh, CGM glucose down from 167 to 137 in the bionic pancreas arm. So that makes a difference um, in terms of when we think of A1C of 7%, which is which equates to a blood sugar level of 154. So it allowed all participants to achieve that A1C target. Uh, we also discovered uh, a lower proportion of time in the hypoglycemic range, down from 2.8%, which is about 40 to 45 minutes in the whole day, down to 1.2%, which is about 15 minutes in the day. A uh, lower median number of carbohydrate interventions were required, um, down from 5 to 3 uh, in the bionic pancreas. And although that does not seem like a big change, it does make a difference to these kids who uh, are so active in camp with their activities and uh, and, you know, everything that they're involved in at that any time that they have to stop to take carbs, wait 15 minutes, get their blood sugars checked again and, you know, do that on repeat, uh, a decrease from five to three is, um, uh, you know, uh, affects their experience and their quality of life. And then um, in terms of hyperglycemia, when we worry about ketones, uh, the level that we that is concerning is medium to large. And so uh, no occasions of medium to large ketones were found in the bionic pancreas group and um, no episodes of severe hypoglycemia were recorded. So all in all, in the setting of extremely active kids who are running around and, you know, uh, often experiencing hyper hypoglycemia, this was very positive with being able to achieve tighter control, but uh, not at the expense of even more hypoglycemia. And when these participants were asked about um, uh, domains and quality of life, there was a significant decrease in hypoglycemia fear and regimen burden in the bionic pancreas group, which is indicated with the lighter gray bars as compared to the control groups, which are the darker gray bars. And so moving away from a continuously monitored setting to a home use study, um, to be able to prove that this device was safe and effective in the home use setting without continuous monitoring. We conducted the multi-center home use study across four sites in the U.S. And um, this, again, the, the trend of the ball and stick figure looks very similar to our CAMP study showing uh, narrowing of the range of mean CGMs um, that was uh, CGM glucose that was achieved in the bionic pancreas arm, decrease in hypoglycemia and a decrease in hyperglycemia. So the mean blood sugar went down from 162 to 141, which was a significant change. Um, the number for the percentage of people that uh, were able to achieve a mean uh, CGM glucose that would equate to an A1C of less than seven went up from about 41% to 92% in the bionic pancreas arm. And hypoglycemia was reduced from 1.9% uh, to 0.6%. Now it's important to see um, and to take a look at the relative dose of glucagon that was used in a 24 hour period, which came out to be 0.51 milligrams per day, uh, compared to the recommended dose for treatment of severe hypoglycemia in adults, which is one milligram to be given altogether. And so this was um, very encouraging. To be able to compare the increased uh, benefit of a bihormonal system as opposed to an insulin-only system, we did a head-to-head -head comparison with uh, about 43 participants, and uh, they wore the bionic pancreas at home without any restrictions in physical activity or diet, and we saw their mean uh, blood sugars decrease from 165 down to 148, and a further decrease to 139 in the bihormonal arm. Their mean time in target range, which is a metric used increasingly, um, if not as uh, um, you know commonly as the A1C, uh, if not more, um, to look at glycemic targets um, and time and range being a better marker of uh, blood sugar control than the A1C, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, the time and range increased from 60 to 79 uh, in the bihormonal arm, which was a little bit better than even the insulin-only arm. And then the median time spent in hypoglycemia actually improved in the uh, bihormonal arm, um, and there was no change between the insulin-only and usual care. So um, to summarize, the mean CGM improved significantly, even as compared to the insulin arm, um, without a rise in uh, uh, hypoglycemia exposure. And so the time and range um, goal 
of 85% and above is uh, included in the new guidelines uh, by the American Diabetes Association as a goal to achieve um, uh, for patients with type 1 diabetes, uh, in addition to the A1C goal of 7% or below, because an A1C is the average blood sugar measured over the previous three months. And that certainly can be achieved by having a mix of hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia that balance each other out or cancel each other out, making it look like the average is beautiful, yet there are significant fluctuations in blood sugars. Whereas a timing range um, is a better marker, which shows that for the most part of the day, the blood sugars have been in fairly good range. And so this leads us to the pivotal study where um, our center um, participated as one of the five pediatric sites. We uh, randomized people with type 1 diabetes um, uh, on the bionic pancreas compared to their usual care, which could be anything from multiple daily injections to insulin pumps or to a hybrid closed-loop system, as long as that was uh, FDA-approved. They had to wear the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor for a total of 13 weeks. There were um, uh, criteria for inclusion, which uh, included age and race. Um, and so children had to be above six and less than 18. And uh, we aimed for uh, a good spread across that age range. We uh, also were encouraged to include diverse uh, populations. And so we had no problem doing that here in San Antonio. To be able to make a fair comparison to other modalities of insulin delivery, a third of the patients were encouraged to be uh, multiple daily injection users, a third uh, at least to be pump users, and then the rest could be using any other kind of FDA-approved um, hybrid closed-loop system. And we also wanted to get a good representation of people with uh, very good glycemic control and poor glycemic control with an A1C above 8% um, percent, uh, to be required for at least a third of the participants and no upper limit to the A1C. And this is a schematic of the um, trial design with the pediatric population randomized in a two is to one fashion to bionic pancreas versus um, standard care. And an A1C was checked at baseline and then at 13 weeks. Uh, for participants who were not familiar with the use of a continuous glucose monitor, we wanted to ensure that they were very comfortable with its use because that would be critical to the continuation of the trial. And so we had them participate in a two-week run-in phase where they would come in, um, receive training on the CGM, and uh, for the next two weeks, we would collect data to ensure that they had a good number of blood, sugar in, uh, blood sugars coming through. And... Uh, this was uh, our entire cohort uh, with the adult and pediatric participants combined. Um, there was good representation uh, from the minority communities. There was also a fairly good representation of uh, participants who use multiple daily injections for their insulin regimen, a third of the participants in that category, and then 8% of participants who had also never used a CGM before. A third of the participants were pump users, and then the rest were pump users that were um, uh, pumpers who used a kind of smart pump um, which utilized hybrid closed-loop technology. And the outcomes are analyzed in a hierarchical fashion, which means that if the outcome on top meets the criteria for significance, then only do we go on to analyze the outcome um, below. And uh, the first few outcomes looked at the change in A1C at weeks 13, CGM glucose in that less than 54, so severe hypoglycemia range, mean CGM glucose, and then the time and target range between 70 to 180. And in terms of the overall cohort, that demonstrated a decrease in A1C by 0.5%. So the bionic pancreas arm is um, here to the right with the baseline A1C in the in red, and then at weeks 13 in blue. In standard care, there was no change in A1C. And mind you, this cohort also included um, a good number of participants who already had an A1C at target of less than seven. And so overall combined, um, the decrease was 0.5%, which is considered significant uh, when talking about new diabetes interventions. In uh, participants that had an A1C higher than uh, 7%, there was a greater decrease of about 0.7% from baseline um, to week 13. And then looking at our pediatric cohort, 
there was a greater A1C improvement in children with higher baseline A1C. So the higher you went, um, the greater you de your decrease. The figure on the left, the scatter plot, shows that as your A1C kind of gets in this range of above 10, um, uh, the expected or the observed change was more than 2%. And this is shown in um, a different way here with a box and whiskers plot. Uh, with a higher A1C, the greater the difference between your A1C at uh, baseline versus at 13 weeks. And looking at our sample day from that entire 13-week period, um, the bionic pancreas arm is shown in blue with standard care in red and the dotted lines showing the mean, um, and uh, the mean at all points is lower in the bionic pancreas arm, especially overnight. So nocturnal hyperglycemia was much improved um, on the pancreas with a tighter uh, intraquartile range. So the um, sort of red um, uh, area is the, uh, the intraquartile range for the standard care arm with this range being much tighter showed in the darker um, um, area for the bionic pancreas arm. And so we were able to satisfy um, the first seven of the 10 proposed outcomes to be analyzed in that hierarchical fashion. The standard deviation of CGM glucose um, was the last criteria that uh, met significance, but then the CGM glucose less than 70 did not, and so we did not pursue analysis of the subsequent um, uh, endpoints. So our future direction with this is that we are gearing up for phase two of the bionic pancreas pivotal trial, which is going to be bihormonal. This is uh, going to follow at the heels of uh, the completion of our last trial, um, where we learned a lot about our patient population um, and uh, what uh, makes for a participant that will, you know, follow through versus not um, diabetes technology, getting a heart and sturdy with the newest, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of devices and fusion sets and so on, teaching our families um, that, you know, come here at the Texas Diabetes Institute about um, uh, kind of these advancements and including the same population that we see in clinic in these trials without any discrimination. COVID challenges over the past year, we started recruitment um, at the in, in the fall of 2020. So just a few months after everything had really shut down and uh, any research that was not COVID related was very hard to continue with, um, with Dr. Lynch really uh, pushing through um, IRB and uh, um, a lot of staff turnover in that COVID year, um, getting past that. And then the snowstorm, um, where we learned how to troubleshoot devices that relied on uh, uh, power and the internet um, and uh, how we could keep our participants safe during that crazy week. Um, and uh, we are so much better prepared for the next trial, which is going to be uh, much longer, so a whole year and a larger studies. So instead of 18 pediatric participants, we're uh, going to be including 26. And uh, starting with a pivot uh, with the uh, pilot study, including two, and then progressing on to the actual um, second phase. And the study will utilize DASI glucagon, which is a stable glucagon. Um, and this is the reason why the bionic pancreas trials um, took a few extra years than initially planned, because we had to wait for a stable form of glucagon to be developed, which could be used um, in the bionic pancreas without the need to reconstitute the emergency kit on a daily basis, which was not going to be feasible. And so this stable glucagon is good um, in its um, uh, cartridge for up to six months um, and uh, will provide continuous microdose glucagon dosing. Um, and this is still, um, though, uh, investigational in the use of pumps. So we are excited about that. And I thank you all for listening and I welcome any questions. Thank you, Dr. Jockey, for that wonderful talk. Really amazing uh, data that you showed. Um, I'm sure we'll be excited to hear updates uh, next year, maybe. Uh, the floor is open to questions, either through uh, the chat box, or if you want to unmute yourself to ask your question, that's fine, too. There is one question in the chat box uh, commenting on the Star Wars technology, <laughs> which is great. Um, 
Um, is this bionic pancreas available commercially and how much does it cost? So this is not available commercially just yet because we're um, um, going on with our uh, pivotal trials. After this, um, we would submit the data to the FDA and after their approval, this would then be um, commercially available and is expected to be covered through insurance uh, without, um, at least this far from what we know, um, not expected to be any more expensive than uh, current insulin uh, pump technology. Hi, hi, this is Dr. Macias. I have a quick question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of the potential potential pitfalls that I see with this uh, with this technology is that um, that you're using an insulin that takes about thirty minutes to to start its effect. Um, where, uh, as as a diabetic, uh, you know that, for instance, in the morning, your absorption from your gut uh, gut starts like at five minutes. Um, how do, how does this uh, adjust for changes in sensitivity throughout the day? So, for instance, uh, 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 when when I when I dose for my insulin in the morning, I dose it like about an hour before I eat. Um, so, uh, with this, uh, have you have you tried using like other types of insulin, insulin like Fiasp? Yes. Um, we have, and uh, FIAS was included in the extension study uh, in our pediatric cohort. So the extension study was what followed the 13 weeks of uh, where for those participants that got randomized to usual care as an incentive for them to continue participation when they, at the end of that 13 week, um, uh, finished their uh, initial phase, they were switched to using the bionic pancreas with FIASP. And the adult cohort always had an arm to use FIASP, um, which, uh, you know, I can't talk about that data uh, too much today, but um, we, the binding pancreas has that capability. The second issue is um, taken care of with that continuous adaptation that the algorithm does for different times of the day. So it learns from the wearer that um, if somebody is more sensitive early on in the morning versus later on in the day, that would be their pattern, which is why uh, the learning is done from the wearer and nobody else. Um, and this happens in real time in continuous fashion for as long as the pancreas is worn for. But, but uh, one of my questions is, is that it, it's not so much that that you're. I, I know that the sensitivity changes, but it's just the absorption from the gut versus the onset of the insulin that are that are going to be different. Um, so, were you running into a lot of hyperglycemias after breakfast? Um, so you're talking about pre-meal dosing and how um, you would tend to dose earlier um, for certain meals. You could certainly do that with the bionic pancreas. You can certainly announce your meal um, earlier than you're about to eat um, if that's what you find is your pattern. Okay, that, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then I, I have a second question. So you rely on your CGMs as as for your insulin control, right? And, and, and that works well when you're at, at rest, but uh, studies show that during strenuous exercise, the difference between your uh, glycemic level and your and your CGM can be up to like 60, uh, 50 points different. And because and, and, I'm, I'm a cyclist and, and, and I know that for sure. Um, so and, and for instance, and, and when you're when you're exercising, you eat a ton of a ton of sh uh, uh, carbohydrates and, and a lot of the times you don't you don't uh, dose for them. Um, how, how does the bionic pancreas adjust to people who are very active and, and they, they engage in forms where, uh, where again, the CGM is not as, is, is not as reliable and that they eat a, a ton of carbohydrates uh, with, with different insulin uh, um, sensitivities? Mm -hmm. So um, the CGM sometimes can be reading a little differently from um, the plasma glucose value. But the newest forms of CGMs have actually um, bridged that difference by lowering their marks in the different groups um, of blood sugars quite a bit. And also uh, the CGM lag, which is how quickly does the CGM pick up rising or falling blood sugars, is um, down to six to seven minutes on the newer um, continuous glucose monitoring systems. So that helps with um, uh, not falling too far behind with insulin changes in response to uh, rising or falling blood sugar patterns. 
The second question about the carbohydrates is actually recommended not to dose with carbohydrates with the bionic pancreas when exercising because we want to allow it to adapt um, to your body when you're exercising. So if you have carbs, especially carbs that you don't announce as a meal, the bionic pancreas is not going to understand that your body tends to um, uh, decrease blood sugar levels when you exercise. It's going to see a rise in blood sugars as a result of the carbs, and it's not going to know that this is because you've had external carbs and not because your body um, uh, reacts in a hyperglycemic fashion during exercise. And so the, the recommendation is in the first few days of wear to uh, not take extra carbs and to rely on the insulin suspension and in the bihormonal form on the glucagon kicking in to counter the hypoglycemia. And uh, in the long term, this would actually reduce the work that is needed from the wearer when they are exercising to not have to think twice about taking extra carbs to avoid hypoglycemia because that hypoglycemia is going to be mitigated by insulin and glucagon. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not talking about uh, the the carbs that you take for hypoglycemia. I'm talking about like w when when you're exercising for a, a long, long time, you like a, a, a person can use up to 60 to 90 grams per hour of, of, of carbohydrates when they, they're exercising for a long, long time. Uh, but yeah, that, that's awesome. Thank you so much for the, those answers. Sure, absolutely. And in that sense as well, if you know, um, decreased insulin dosing is not sufficient, then uh, perhaps the bihormonal form of the pancreas would be more effective. Great, thank you. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jones, you want to go ahead and ask your question live? Oh, sure. I just had put it in the chat. What, did you see dropout uh, in the group, particularly with young children, with having three injection sites or insertion sites? You've got the insulin site, the glucagon site, and the CGM. Uh, were some of the children, uh, particularly the younger children, was that problematic or not really? Uh, it was well accepted to have those three different insertion sites, certainly less frequently than shots, no doubt. But I'm just curious uh, what, if you saw any problem with that. With the summer camp study, um, it was incredible how motivated the kids were to keep going with uh, the three different sites for the pancreas. With our personal experience here in San Antonio, we haven't done the bihormonal um, study yet, but uh, patients who were not monitor users or uh, pump users were still okay with um, uh, you know, putting two devices on their bodies because of the amount of work that it took away from them um, and, and allowing them to continue with their daily lives with a lot less uh, medical burden than they otherwise would. Uh, I'm curious to see what the bihormonal studies shows. All right, additional questions from the group in the couple of minutes we have left. If not, uh, once again, thank you very much, Dr. Joffrey, for this great, you know, really cutting edge uh, talk. And I look forward to hearing more updates uh, in the future. Thank, thank you, everybody, for joining in this morning and have a great rest of your day. Since that Grand Rounds recording, a huge study on the bionic pancreas came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. After that study came out, local news station KSAT 12 talked to two of our patients in the study, Bella and Kat. When I did the study for that one, I didn't want to leave. Like when, Even when I was halfway, I was like, no! This is the first time ever having a sleepover, and also the first time with diabetes. I was very nervous. Here's what their mom, Angelique, had to say. There's less trial and error. There's less chance of having those really severe lows where you can go into a diabetic coma, you're by yourself. Here today with us on the podcast is Dr. Rabab Joffrey. She recently joined us from Harvard Medical School and Mass General Hospital, and she's the lead locally on this bionic pancreas study. We moved down in that first uh, pandemic year so that made it real interesting um, with, you know, a lot of things were shut down. Um, so uh, some of the things San Antonio is known for, Fiesta and, uh, you know, some of the other things, we weren't able to participate in that as much, but we loved the weather and we loved the cost of living. 
and we got to know um, folks at work and made some friends real, you know, very quickly. And what do you like to do in our, our wonderful San Antonio weather? I, I hear that you like horses. I do like horses, although I haven't had a chance to uh, go to one of the ranches and uh, or, or see a game of polo yet. So that's definitely on the list. But what I did do was indulge a little bit in my green thumb. And that was something that I tried to do in Boston and wasn't very successful at just because the weather did not permit. But uh, uh, I love throwing things. Um, and uh, it's it's been, I think, uh, a nice few years of kind of just, you know, that's my way to relax and um, kind of enjoy my uh, downtime a little bit. And then, of course, the baby um, is a joy to be around, just seeing her milestones and her growing up. Um, I feel like she's growing up too fast, but uh, uh, she's going to be a year old in a month. So uh, time's really flown by. Well, and congratulations on your baby girl. And that leads us in nicely to what is your reaction now that the study's been published in the New England Journal of Medicine? It's really exciting. What do you want to say about that? It's personally very exciting for me because when I trained as a pediatric endocrinologist at Mass General, I worked with children, yet the clinical trials involved adults um, during their initial phases of the studies. And uh, I would just be itching to, you know, include children uh, in those studies that we were seeing pretty impressive results from even at that stage. And so to be able to come down to UT and uh, include all, all kids in this national pivotal trial that is going to lead towards FDA clearance is very exciting for me, very satisfying. And then also seeing the trial through, uh, especially during some very tough times, uh, you know, in that first pandemic year when all non-COVID-related research was put on hold, we were able to push through, get all approvals, and uh, with, you know, some staff turnover related to COVID, still get the study going, seeing how the families adapted to this new technology coming from all kinds of backgrounds, whether they were tech savvy or not, uh, and then do well on this was very gratifying to um, see that on a day by day basis. And then also when all the data was put together and analyzed, uh, to be able to say that children really were able to meet their blood sugar targets on this device and improve their quality of life. And the poorer their control was prior to starting the study, the more improvement they achieved. So the future looks very bright for diabetes. I think at least it's able to offer an option that was not present in the past um, for children and their families who needed to spend a lot of time and effort in controlling chronic condition. And uh, now this affords them an option to be more hands-off, have more peace of mind, and allow kids to focus on other things that they, you know, through their developmental stages may want to be more involved with um, their social interactions, sports, um, academics, you know, uh, personal relationships as they enter college and things like that, rather than having to think about their diabetes, you know, dozens of times every day. Yes. And the little girl in the story, I, I loved how she says, you know, it's the first time she's been able to spend the night at a friend's house, you know, something that to her is huge. And a lot of kids may take for granted, you know. Absolutely. And that goes to say that, uh, you know, type one diabetes, where uh, the risk for first degree relatives is increased um, several folds. And, and you may have a family where there are multiple children affected by this mm -hmm. diagnosis uh, to, to be able to offer that to a family and kind of have some return to normalcy is, uh, is a big win. So what's the take home message for the pediatricians, the providers who are listening? It would be important to detect the first signs of diabetes in children and uh, recognize the first signs and symptoms which can overlap with a lot of other conditions. Any child who comes in with increased thirst, increased urination, and weight loss should always trigger uh, an evaluation for diabetes, even if there are other kind of explanations for those symptoms, such as a stomach bug or dehydration or anything else like that. It should always be in the back of the mind of any pediatrician evaluating children coming in for that. Pediatricians might be the first care providers that are discussing this diagnosis with the family well before they get to see an endocrinologist. Right. 
to be able to um, offer them hope and be able to give them a little bit of perspective on what the next few days to weeks to months and years might look like for this child um, and uh, then allow them to uh, navigate the healthcare system so that they can seek effective and timely care, I think would be, um, uh, you know, important. And so what's the next step for this trial? The next step is to present the data that we have from our first phase of the insulin-only bionic pancreas to the FDA, and uh, that will go towards clearance for this device to be available in the market and proceed with our second phase, which will be bihormonal. So this includes both insulin and glucagon given through the same device. Glucagon is a hormone that acts in a fashion that is opposite to that of insulin. So whereas insulin brings down blood sugars, glucagon raises it. And the reason for having glucagon in this device is that anybody who is taking insulin is at risk for low blood sugars or hypoglycemia. Sometimes just stopping the infusion of insulin is not enough to avoid hypoglycemia altogether. And so giving a little dose or a microdose of glucagon can then help with maintaining the blood sugars in the target range and avoiding the lows as well as avoiding the highs. And so this trial will commence next year and will be for a total duration of uh, 12 months, which is great because then you can really start to see how people adapt to, uh, you know, something new. Mm-hmm. And following the, the end of that trial, that, that data will be presented to the FDA um, for clearance of that version of the device. So it could be approved within a year? I believe that the incident only, at least because we have the data and we're presenting it to the FDA, uh, may be uh, able to be approved within a year. And then once the second trial has uh, been completed and the data analyzed, you know, the following year, it'll be presented to the FDA for clearance. Thank you so much, Dr. Rabab Joffrey, who sees patients at University Health's Texas Diabetes Institute. Thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you, Holly. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. Pediatrics Now is produced by Nick Mary. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.